Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Ayal Shai. Today my guest is Pamela Hobart. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Ayal. It's really good to have you here. And um, as the custom goes, I'd love for you to uh, take us right into today's topic of discussion. Yes, yes. Well, I think the topic that uh, we had in mind for today is basically understanding negative emotions and what what role they play in life and whether um, whether our reactions to them are fixed or malleable and whether they're helpful or not so yeah as soon as we uh, corresponded over the topic of discussion I was fascinated with this topic and I just uh, want to plant a flag and say that even the adjective negative, that is put or glued to these emotions like that's something i'd like to to address um for us to discuss but maybe start at the beginning and kind of see in your journey that took you to the point where you're dealing with that topic um what are some of the feelings and thoughts that made you uh that prompted you to deal with that mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um i think Although I could call it understanding negative emotions now as sort of like a concept or a theme, it's only in retrospect that I realized that I've learned it and relearned it many times, um, sort of in different contexts over the course of my life. And the first big confrontation with negative feelings and how they work and how we have to like make our peace with them in some sense was... Uh, When I was a teenager because I um, I have obsessive compulsive disorder you know like contamination issues and for a lot of people that sort of starts up around puberty you know like your hormones are all weird and like you're getting anxious in various ways and it's a time when stuff like this can present um, so I started getting like really obsessed with just things being dirty which is so common it's like the cliche like punchline of a joke I would like take pens or markers to school and if anyone touched them I would like take it back and throw it in the trash or like take it home and wash it in the sink and like this is not normal behavior um, I I got obsessed with things that are irrational in some sense like that don't attach to reality like there was a store that I decided everything that came from it was like dirty and I wanted it out of my closet but like there was nothing actually wrong with the store and clothes are washable um, so I knew this wasn't normal and I it took some years of trial and error but I eventually landed in cognitive behavioral therapy um, which is a common treatment for OCD and it involved um, what you would call exposure exposure therapy exposure and response prevention. So the idea is that there's like a certain amount of talking you can do about these aversive feelings and the anxiety that surrounds OCD. Like you can sit across from a therapist and say, I realize the clothes from that store aren't dirty or like the pens are safe. Um, if I put a pen that someone else used in my backpack, it doesn't ruin the backpack. It doesn't ruin my room at home. You know, like it, it, that, that's like magical thinking that doesn't attach to reality. There's the evolutionary component, which is like you have this module that's attuned to microbes or something and yours is mm. like – yours is in overdrive. It's like not actually protecting you from microbes. It's like protecting you from being around people, which is actually something you want. That's good. Um, right. Not a protection at all. And so – You do that there, but you talk about that stuff. It sort of does something, but it tends to not be enough. 
and that if you really want to get better over time at being less OCD, that you need the behavioral component, which is basically getting untrained to feel averse to random, not actually unsafe things. And that's what exposure therapy is about. So usually in order to agree to the exposure therapy, it helps to have some understanding of like, that's how this stuff works because exposure therapy is very painful and it's painful on purpose. <laughs> like right. my therapist would have me bring things like physically to the office that I had decided were unclean or no longer good. Like there was a bottle of lotion around this time. I remember it smelled good. It like wasn't cheap. It was like a nice bottle of lotion, but I had had the thought that like maybe there was urine or bleach in it or something. There was no reason to think this. But I had the thought and I was behaving like the thought was true. Like I was not no longer using the lotion and wanted to throw it away. And so you do something in the office that's like, okay, open the lotion, like put it on your hands, see how it feels. And I mean, it feels terrible. It doesn't feel good. Like <laughs> you don't realize in that instant that it's safe. Like your body has these um, – like pattern somatic patterns and like anxiety patterns that are telling you like this is not safe everything you touch now is getting dirty like it's on your skin it's spreading it's going to like get on the car and it's on your shirt and like it feels terrible but exposure works slowly which is that each time you lean into the OCD related anxiety instead of grasping at straws to make it go away you reinforce the place you're trying to go, which is that I can encounter things that my OCD brain has decided are unsafe and I can make a choice for reasons um, rather than get worse, which is like wash every time, which teaches you that you cannot tolerate the anxiety. You cannot tolerate the fake dirt. Like you have to do something. The problem with having to do something is that that's a downward spiral. Like it doesn't stay the same. You go from like washing your hands a little more than someone else to like showering eight times a day and like bleaching everything every time you come home and whatever. It's not like a stable equilibrium. So you have to move from that anxiety place to the like, I can tolerate the anxiety place. Um, and around this time, like the therapy does work, you know, like in weeks and months, not years and years. But I began to realize subconsciously or to some degree consciously that the success was not what you would hope. It's not like you get cured and then mm -hmm. you never have weird OCD thoughts again. I have weird OCD thoughts all the time, like still all day long every day. Um, but I don't feel the compulsion often. I don't often feel a compulsion to do much about them. Uh, right. And that's the success. But like, it's very depressing to realize that <laughs> success is kind of modest um, mm -hmm. in this way and that you will still have sort of thoughts and emotions that are aversive. It's just there's something you can like kind of live around. And uh, that was yeah. the first learning of this. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, to me, it really strikes a chord uh, in my personal life, um, having lost my mom at age 10, you know, I kind of thought as a, as a kid, you can naively think it was like, well, this is something that happens every 10 years or something, right? Like you think it's a pattern, even though it's only happened once because your life was short up until then. And you don't really have an idea about um, how life is not actually like that. So you just anticipate another blow at any time. And so I just want to say that for me as well, it's something that I found out that I'm no longer depressed and really obsessed with these thoughts. It's not that they don't come. Like I actually often think about my wife and daughter um, getting killed on the road or in some way. Okay, it, it arises in my mind, but I, I learned in a kind of a CBT way and I, I haven't gone to CBT therapy, but I, I think it's quite similar to just kind of subvert that instinctively into appreciating what I have and um, understanding that I have a lot to be grateful at this moment and not 
try to push away the thought, not try to give myself magical thinking solutions like, oh, this isn't going to happen. No, I know it can happen. It has happened. It will happen to other people. It might happen to me. But the best, the absolutely best thing that I can do with these thoughts is at least turn them into something that uh, makes gratefulness uh, arise. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's also... I, I just find it fascinating with uh, whether it's OCD, anxiety, maybe anorexia, and a lot of the behaviors that are very obsessed about control in some way, that it's very interesting that us as humans have this tendency of taking things that are um, rational in the sense that you do want to have a clean enough environment, right? You do want to have um, a good enough uh environment that you're in right you do want to have a good enough diet it it's quite an amazing skill that we take these things and instead we put them in categories that are so black and white that make us lose our mind and and uh, in in essence make us handicapped you know mm-hmm. um and yeah i don't know what what do you think about you're that? so right you know i've often joked that like in my work as a philosophical coach where i talk with people about stuff like this that like it's all pushing against black and white thinking. Like virtually every aspect of the work that we do could be described in terms of resisting that impulse. And like so many of us have the kind of maximization algorithm in there and we want to apply it to something. And for some people it may be control over their body or control over their environment. Sometimes people get it over like being productive and useful. And some people I've worked with a number of clients who are involved with like the effective altruist movement where it started in a very good place. Like they want to do good and not like waste charity dollars. And it very quickly can do the maximization thing and become like Mm -hmm. my purpose is to maximize in like narrow terms how many lives I save with my money that I'm also maximizing, you know, and it just goes crazy. And, um, I, I had an experience with this. I hadn't even thought about it in connection with this topic, but you're reminding me that I was vegan for about a year, about 10 years ago, I was vegan for a year and I did it because I had adopted my first dog and this dog it was very obvious to me that he had separation anxiety, like from being through the shelter and stuff. And he would absolutely lose his mind every time I picked up my keys, like no matter how long I was gone, he would tear everything up and just drool. And it was obvious to me that he was having like a panic attack. And I was very, it was very relatable because I was sort of fresh in recovery as far as that is possible from OCD. And that brought home to me like, what it means to say, oh, if you eat pigs, you eat bacon, whatever, like pigs are at least as smart as dogs. So like you've sort of participated in this system that tortures pigs and you have this dog in your house that you're treating in this really special way. Like he had health insurance. Like if you're trying to be consistent and like rational, that is very hard to uphold. And so I became vegan, but by the time a year was up, not only was I unsure of how good it was for me physically, but I noticed that all those purity and maximization things were going. It was like, oh, should I give away all the leather? Oh, I'm sitting in a restaurant that like has particles of like egg and milk on the table and like now they're on me. And it was threatening to interact with that capacity Mm -hmm. for better or for worse that I have. And so I had to – I had to quit. I pretty much quit cold turkey because it was like really threatening to be a black hole that would suck up all my emotional energy, not unlike hand washing or arranging the environment. Yeah. I mean, purity, I was just kind of thinking about that concept and of how human it is, how nothing is in essence pure in nature. And it's just something that we impose that we're able to create, come up with an, with um come up with in our minds and just impose on nature trying to find purity all of a sudden where it's just not a thing that's 
a thing, you know, very rarely you're going to find a pure diamond or something. But mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I was just trying to think as an exercise with myself. It's like, has the notion of purity ever brought anything good to the world? And I was like, <laughs> I'm re- I really doubt it. You know, I really right. doubt it. I think that the notion that everything should be clean enough, good enough. Mm-hmm and so on the enough part is like we 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 hate it so much but it's so so good for us to stick to that you're totally right yeah we could say if you wanted to put that in like philosopher terms it's like purity is not a natural kind or it's like not a concept that is sort of like knit into reality instead it is a judgment based on standards that are themselves relative to the purpose at hand and relative to, you know, human biology or whatever. So like if food is, even they go through this when they're like inspecting food, right? The food that you buy, like cereal in a box is allowed to have insects in it. There are insect parts in there, but people imagine that like because the factory was inspected, like these ones are perfectly clean. And when once in a while you open up the bag and there's like a fly in it or something, you like, oh, you complain and you like go on social media like, oh, this one's tainted. But that that doesn't make contact with reality. And one fly in it also, though it's off-putting, does not make it unsafe for human consumption. Um, And so – that's another thing that I see as a hallmark of my personal philosophical life and also my work with clients is that it is okay to have a standard that's somewhere in that gray area that is a real standard. Like I'll eat the cereal that has one fly. I won't eat the one that's like moldy or, or, you know, like that's a gray area where we make a judgment. You don't have to give up the whole idea of like eating cleanly or maybe we get new information, like some kinds of plastics are not safe to eat food from. Okay. So we changed the standard, but the standard is still within the domain of like this gray area stuff that is sort of not, um, not pin downable once and for all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so if I'm making the the connection, is it if we go back to the subject of feelings and how uh, they are not necessarily to be avoided or to become impediments to our progress? Uh, I mean, it's a it's a very it's very clear by now that we can see that this is another kind of purity, right? To to want to feel the positive feelings, the so called positive. Again, I I I have my own <laughs> kind of. Um, uh, problems with with even labeling negative sure. or positive because context matters you know uh, if sure. you're faced with a tiger boy do you want to feel fearful if you're faced with somebody who's going to mug you boy do you want to feel angry and indignant right um but this is in essence right what a lot of people are is the pitfall that they um encounter is wanting to be um riding the wave all the time right and never never getting off it so in in terms of your story how how does it um connect there Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think i think my experiences with ocd and later um my experiences with grief uh i lost my father a few years ago they turned me into sort of the opposite of maybe what's more normal which they turned me into a wallower in negative feelings, kind of like mm-hmm. I recognize I'm not going to make them go away. Even when I'm not having like OCD crises, I'm like a moody person with a low baseline, um, a low hedonic baseline. And so maybe I went black and white with that in the other direction, which is like, the happy thing is not available for me. It's not available for me pre cognitive behavioral therapy. It's not available post-cognitive therapy to whatever extent I was happier than like, okay, people are just going to die. And that my dog died, the one who helped me become temporarily vegan. Mm. And, and, um, and so I didn't try to do that thing, which was push them away. 
push the negative emotions away or like wait for a time when they sort of go away so that I can be like focused and enjoying what I'm doing or whatever. Um, but I'm willing to entertain the idea that maybe I'm too far in the other direction, like sort of too modest in expectations about like what kinds or flavors of happiness or contentment or satisfaction or even just like kind of calm might be available, uh, might be available in life. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally remember very clearly that coming out of depression in my late teens was just like a moment where I decided to, yeah, I, I have to expose myself, talking about exposure, expose myself to the possibility because I'm not allowing myself to live, right? Just thinking about all the bad things that are going to happen and identifying with them. So this is something we haven't mentioned explicitly, but I feel like a lot of the benefit, like for for example, for meditation that can come is decoupling this um, identification, this identity and the and the thoughts that are thought um, or by any other means that you can find, you know, and there are stoic um, techniques to do this. And some people use psychedelics with a guide, whatever helps. But decoupling um, identity from thoughts is, is a big help. And then really being able to almost give up in a sense in the face of the universe kind of sending sending its cosmic rays through you understanding that cosmic rays are cosmic rays they're they're going to go through you you know thinking about kind of blocking them away by by doing that i mean thankfully we have our um, beautiful atmosphere to do some of that uh, but still, it's 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 happening, you know, and uh, we get bombarded with UV light, we get bombarded with other particles, and we degrade, and we are not going to be in perfect condition, neither mentally nor physically. And yeah, coming to terms with these, um, with this understanding is is not easy, especially when we live in a culture where there is such strong emphasis on just finding the next wave to ride right and not only that you're almost being mocked for not being in that position either by your peers who are not actively mocking you of course but are just doing their thing in order to um portray a life of, of happiness and, and all that um or by companies who just make you feel inadequate and and as if you're wasting your life away feeling uh, not only the best feelings mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's all of the things you're describing here are why it seems to me that like if i were to describe the idea that we were going to talk about today you know like negative emotions how you should like do what's valuable even if they're around or don't try to be too happy stuff like that it sounds like trivial on paper like, of course, you know, who would be like waiting around to feel good before they like live their life or who would have the expectation that they would be happy all the time? Because when you say when you put a point on it, it sounds absurd, but the way it shows up in everyday life is much more subtle. Um, it's much more subtle. And all the time we're sort of training ourselves to move towards and away things, which maybe is to your point that you don't like the, the label of negative and positive emotions because it's, you know, clearly more complex than that. And so to capture them moving towards or awayness, the term is kind of better to say aversive, like aversive emotions are the ones, whatever's in there that you're sort of repelled by mm -hmm. and non-aversive emotions are the ones that you're sort of like, Ooh, yeah, more of that, you know, the chocolate or the sex or whatever, the buying stuff. And when we think of it more in terms of aversive or not aversive, it immediately opens up reconceptualizations of that because like anger, for instance, is one that some people experience as quite aversive. Like if you're conflict avoidant or if you have a self-image that like you're not an angry person, if you start feeling angry, you're like, oh no. But other people like run on their own anger and use it as sort of an identity tool and are like too enmeshed in feeling and behaving that way. And they don't experience uh, that flush of anger as being aversive at all. And maybe that's in that context, part of, part of the problem. Um, but 
there's this psychologist I like. I read him a lot. His name is Nick Wignall. I'll give you the link or whatever. Um, sure. He he writes about how the way he describes it is that when you have a thought that's initially aversive or you consider an action that's initially aversive, like, oh, someone will die or like my skin is being damaged every day by the sun or whatever, like the the aversion amounts to either suppressing it, like don't think about it, don't think about it, don't think about it. Or you could try to do something to make it go away. Like, oh, if you buy this special detox sunscreen, then like mm. you will be safe and your skin will like heal itself. And if you read a statistic about how rare car accidents are, then you can like argue your way into thinking it's false that your loved ones will ever die in a car accident. Those are like um, compulsions sort of on the same spectrum as OCD stuff, though they're not all the way clinical. Every time you do that, either suppress or try to solve it, you teach yourself that it's unsafe to have negative emotions and you make it so that the next time it's even more automatic to suppress or solve. And you get in that same OCD type feedback thing where you have no psychological flexibility around like where the flexible response is that bad thing might happen. And yes, my skin's sort of damaged. And I can sort of do some things about that, like drive safely and have a safe car and wear sunscreen, but it's not a guarantee. And I'm going to choose once the reasonable actions are exhausted, I'm going to choose to feel gratitude and to sort of rest in my understanding of that humans are flesh and blood and mortal. You know, like that just involves so much more flexibility and complexity than the trained thing of suppress or solve i would i could nickname it as yeah yeah i think i think it's it's so important to just make it the the natural um way that things flow in your mind that you just take a negative uh thing that could get you in a loop and you just turn it into into a positive which is true you know it's not you're not tricking yourself when you say well uh the sun's rays are hitting me uh, that's all the more reason to to really live your life the way you want to live them, right? And not wait and think about how um, you can spend 30 years doing something that you don't really love for some sort of obscure payoff in the end. Um, so that I already uh, mentioned that, and I, I do think that's that's extremely important to do. And also, for me personally, something that was very helpful is once I started seeing the emotions arising, not as part of a bigger pattern, right? There's something that is um, up one level from emotions, that is up one level from thoughts, that is up one level from desires, let's say. And that's our, our, our psyche as a whole, and maybe even as a bigger whole, if you join the, the, the body to create a body-mind. And uh, that thing... Ultimately, I think you just realize that by being so concerned with all the things that make your psyche or your body not right, whether it's a physical illness that you're trying to avoid with, with all your might or, um, or a mental state that you're trying to avoid at all costs, and you realize that the, 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 very, the very attempt is actually causing the body-mind to be unhealthy. Once you understand that mental health is a process, right? And of course, we know this very simply from just physical health. If you take a snapshot of, let's say, my um, my blood results, right? They can be very different from in a, in a two-hour window, right? It could be low before I eat and very, very high. Now, according to this one snapshot, you could extrapolate and say, wow, this person is unhealthy, right? Of course, we know it's actually a process and this is a healthy thing. It rises and then and it goes down and so on. And once you understand that, I think you can gain an understanding about emotions that it's, it's healthy if they are fitting, if they sit well with reality. It's unhealthy if it's completely decoupled and let's say you are all the time... Um, depressed or uh if we go to like hippocratic the 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 humors the four humors 
um, theory, you know, they would tell people that have too much blood, supposedly in that theory, that they're too optimistic. And you know, I get that. We don't, we don't, we don't get that illness that often anymore. Right. <laughs> but right. apparently, there there are people who can be like overly optimistic about things to to their own to their own detriment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge can of worms, but I feel like there's something that was lost when we narrowly like medicalized mental health, like turning it into a medical thing has benefits, but it also has costs. And some of the benefits, I mean, arguably accrue to the people who are like the most ill, like who really need heavy duty, like medication and intensive treatments of whatever kind, whether those in fact work or how well is, up for debate, but a lot of people somewhere in the middle where like they're not completely well, the snapshots are iffy, the overall picture is maybe not ideal. Um, They get sucked in at the margin to the medicalized view, which is like there's something wrong with the neurotransmitters in there or whatever, which is like, that whole theory is not substantiated and they don't really know how SSRIs work anyway. And so it's like, if we had sort of more of an enchanted view where like your humors are out of whack or like maybe some people just sort of come with different combinations and they like temper it where they can, but fundamentally you're just of that kind and it's sort of okay as long as it's okay. Um, is like more of a playful and appropriately mysterious lens for what's going on in there, which is like a thing is only a problem if it's a problem, you know, like if you're just kind of constitutionally negative and dour, but you make your way in life and you have your coping mechanisms and stuff like that's fine. You don't maybe need this label that is like you're broken. And by the way, there's a healed version of you that's within reach. And if you got there, then you'd be happy all the time and you'd have more success and blah, blah, blah. Like that's just people or just imagining that, like, in what sense is that possibility real? Like, it seems quite unreal. And the more you go down self-development and personal improvement and mental health treatment and you never find it, the less real you should think that perfect version of yourself is. But people almost, like, hunker down, like, obsessively over, like, well, I must just have tried the wrong modality or, like, if I just keep going. Um, Yeah, it's, I mean, for, for me, in my own life, it took a long time to really finally and and for good decouple um, mental health from feeling any specific emotion. It's actually hard to do because we're um, we're wired so early to associate um, living well with feeling good feelings or feeling these wanted feelings. And I think that only when you understand what being mentally healthy is and only when you reach that point you can unlock for yourself um the knowledge of what it feels like it's it's right as and as long as you think that mental health is feeling all these very specific set of emotions um then your focus is not mental health um, your craving, which is, of course, we know from Buddhism and other things, just like craving is not good for you. It creates suffering in itself. So you're not went mentally well um, for as long as you're in that mindset. And so you have no knowledge of what being mentally healthy is. Now, if we just define mental health as the absence of, of psychic issues, which it's true, that that's all health is. It's not even a it, it, it needs not be defined by the positive things. It's it's really the absence of, of illness. And it sounds boring to people. They, they don't right. want that. They don't want that. It's, and and yeah. um, it, 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 within the context of our culture, it makes sense. They don't want mm-hmm. just to have the absence of illness. Mm-hmm. Even though once you get there and, you know, I, I'm a work in progress, we all are. But once you get to a... a, a a good enough point and we should focus on the enough feels great. (laughs) 
Right. Yeah. It depends where you're coming from. You know, like if someone has no psychic issues of note, but sort of like has that wondering if there's more or like, can I make these peak experiences like more frequent or longer lasting or something? And you tell them like, nope, this is pretty much it. (laughs) Like they would be disappointed. But if you take someone like me or maybe you, who's like had some turmoil or whatever, and it's like, that's sort of the goal. Like, okay. Yeah. All right. I could, I could be okay with that. That sounds pretty good um, to merely, merely have the absence of discrete psychic issues or long lasting negative emotions, aversive. Yeah. For me, for me, I think it's just playing on a, on a different axis altogether because we're just so used to this almost like the, the um, HAG machine with the heart going up and down. You know, we look at that axis of like, we want to be at the, at the peaks, like find new peaks all the time. I think when you're mentally healthy and you can look back a week, a month, a year and tell yourself, well, you know, I haven't experienced a lot of, of internal strife. And again, that's not saying that I haven't had these um, really thoughts that, yeah, even today, I would rather not thought about, I would rather not think about uh, my loved ones dying. But that, that's not it. That's not what makes you ill. What makes you ill is, again, this the, the, the response or the loops that you might fall into. If you can look back and say, you know, well, I haven't been in conflict with myself. It was pretty easy for me to... to um, to choose whether to take the job that wasn't good for me, but but paid really well. And I just said no, because that's how I felt. And I went for it. And I believe in my capability of just living with less money, but, but more um, time on my hands, let's say. If you get to that point, then I think the the axis that you're looking at is is different it's a lot more about like depth and accumulation of of really good days and it affects your soul in in just a different way it's not about a peak anymore it's about how far you've gone into this ocean of experience and what you found and what people you met and how much you have to be grateful for all the time that you've been well now um yeah, it's 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 just different, and uh, you don't get to navigate that space if you if you uh, keep riding the the good old um, wave of just uh, looking for new peaks in terms of excitement and happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're reminding me of this blog post I wrote a while back, um, and I think its title is "Eat the Cheese Plate," and I was reaching for like an analogy that would describe this kind of different axis or like kind of a different standard or game to be playing all together. And so the analogy of a cheese plate is like, you know, you go to a nice restaurant and they bring you cheese at dessert or whatever. And you know what they look like, like it has, you know, like a blue moldy cheese and like a hard one and a soft one. And there are like crackers with weird seeds in them and like some fruit. And there's like a tiny, tiny, tiny little pot of jelly that you're supposed to put with the sour cheese for contrast, whatever. And it's like, if you are always reaching for just this kind of pure emotional and positive or easily non-aversive emotions it's like you went to that cheese plate with all its sort of diversity and and flavors and you picked up the tiny pot of jelly and you're like sucking it down right like a kid because you have no appreciation for that that all those experiences are sort of part of the thing that is eating a cheese plate and maybe you sort of quote unquote like some of them more than others. And many of us, you know, there might be one that you like genuinely just in no uncertain terms dislike, but you like miss the point if you're just eating the jelly. And what that analogy misses is that at least in the cheese plate experience, you're active, like you're not having to endure any of those. You're making a choice. But but in life, that's not true. Like when you lose a loved one or you lose a job or stuff like that, you do get some of those different flavors that are very mixed and 
difficult to grapple with at times, you do get those forced upon you. So it's like life is taking the moldy cheese and it's like you can either learn to appreciate it for what it is, hopefully in a mix of other things usually, or like you just will be suffering. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, I like, I like the, um, yeah, the image there. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask you about, um, your story again, dealing with OCD and, um, coming out of it to the, to the best of your ability and to the best of, you know, getting to where you are. Do, do you feel that there have been watershed moments that are just kind of insights falling into place or is it the, um, true gradual improvement that is also, in a sense, anticlimactic. And I'm, I'm really interesting if what was the more uh, driving factor there, like kind of um, insights at very specific points in time or the gradual process or is it um, peaks interspersed through time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that... Um... I'm sure there were moments of what felt like insight and they were not fake or illusory, but they are not, were not for me, the fuel of progress. The fuel of progress was the very anticlimactic and mundane thing of waking up every day with some provisional commitment to like not doing OCD things. And of course, some days I fell short of like my intermediate goal, like maybe I would wash too much, um, or what avoid, you know, maybe like hold, hold my pee instead of going in a bathroom. I wasn't sure that was clean or whatever. Like, but the good news is that there's so many choices every day to either do the new thing that's hard or do the old thing, which is also hard in its own ways, but it's just the path of least resistance. So it was basically a long slog, but there were times there were times when I noticed that I was making progress that sometimes can be easy to miss in the moment. So like I was thinking of transferring colleges and going to the new college was going to involve like riding the commuter rail, the subway, like downtown to downtown Atlanta. And I did it once and I was in the subway car. And at the time I was just like driving my private car around. And so being in the subway car, like with people coughing and like gum stuck to the floor and stuff, I was just like, your, I really Your worst do nightmare. This. Yeah. Like I couldn't do it. Uh, there's a meaningful sense in which like this is so far out of my range of abilities that like I would not be able to get to focus in class or like I would maybe even not go and like, but I did it. I did switch. I sort of like in a brave moment decided to accept the challenge. Like this is a thing that normal people do. And I mean, normal people don't love the gum on the floor or like the sniffling strangers, but it's sort of all things considered like a reasonable thing to do for most people. Um, and I've escalated many times since there at things that are very obvious to me that I wouldn't have been able to do like when I was really in the hole around 18 or 20 years old. Like I moved to New York City. Of course, the subway was like way dirtier and like everything's old and gross. And like you move into these very expensive apartments that are like really not <laughs> nothing special. You know, it's not like new construction. It's got like 12 coats of paint on it and the paint. I would like imagine that the paint was full of previous occupants like skin cells and their saliva cells and whatever. And like when you're in that headspace, it just feels like the building is burning around you, like like hot, like just it's just so dirty mm. and so distracting. Um, and I still, I still get thoughts like this, and even shades of the experience. Like recently, we bought a house, and it's it's not new. We bought a house here in Austin that's was built in 1997. And, you know, there are, like, smears of things around. The house is in nice condition. Like, there's no, no one reasonable would be like, I couldn't live in this house. But if you look, there are, like, smears and smudges. And I went to paint it. And then I'm imagining the paint is full of my spit. Like, it, it it's the same old stuff. It's exactly the mm -hmm. same old stuff. It's this thoughts that I was talking about with my therapist, like, the better part of 20 years ago. And so it's sort of sad <laughs> to realize that I can never be free of that. I can never be free of that in the way I would like to, which is to not have those thoughts. But I can be free of it in the way that, like, 
I'm going to move into this nice house and paint the walls and like pretty much enjoy it in the way that is possible. Pretty much. It's not the same as someone else's enjoyment, but it's um, better, better than the alternative. And these others, they have their department in departments in life, you know, where they, they probably can't enjoy it as much as, as you are, but you're so right. I mean, every every time that I mean, these moments of bravery, you know, that I, I can do this and I can um, discovering discover something new about yourself. That's progress, right? That's progress, because it really doesn't matter if for another person, this is super easy. What matters is that you've made progress. And now you have um, come closer to again, mental health, which is um, a process over time of just sustainability and and then ability to um to to keep the ball rolling basically and you mentioned how um ocd is not is not easy to do of course like for me that would be hard i don't even like washing dishes you know so it's like (laughs) of course i i would i would hate it and other people would hate it and that's something that struck me as well at some point in my life i remember thinking I'm also not not a not a hard worker. Just not a fan of work ethic. It's not my thing. I I think we're here to um, the, like living well is not going to come about if that's the thing we optimize for again, like the other things we mentioned. And yet, I recognize there are workaholics that to them that's that's not only easy. That's the easy thing because that's their baseline behavior. That's the default. And I think recognizing that about people is, first of all, comical, uh, just as a species, you know, that I, it can be, something can be so hard for me and so easy for this other person who might very well be at the other ex- unhealthy extreme. <laughs> and it, it, it really makes it easy to, easier to understand that progress is about what you can do for yourself. And... Uh, lately, I've been really coming to terms with the idea or kind of the idea really sank in for me that, you know, any athlete, any person who's won a lot, who's successful in the mainstream way, probably the businessman, uh, the best businessman, the best whatever, really, not only does it not tell you anything about their uh, psyche and how well it does, it is actually more likely that they are traumatized from a young age. I think studies show that elite athletes are more likely to have suffered childhood trauma. Um, So yeah, just the more you look at it, the more you see that there is no place for comparison, envy, or, or anything of the like, you know, let's just look after ourselves and make sure that wherever we are, we can be a little bit better tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, it's the narratives around these things are so complicated and even contradictory. It's like, okay, well don't compare yourself to other people, but also like you're behind at life and they're doing this thing you aren't doing. And uh, this thread about neurodivergence I even like say that kind of lightly because the whole neurodivergence thing was initially a way to like talk about people who were out of the norm, just like statistically in kind of a non-stigmatizing way, which like fine, that's totally fine. But it's kind of gotten a life of its own, especially online, like in memes and on TikTok or whatever, which is like sometimes people who are different in whatever way, and I get to say this because I'm one of them, sometimes you sort of want to say, oh, this is more like a disability or an illness. My OCD is like cancer. Like I didn't do anything to catch it. It was sort of not going into remission. I have to like live with it, whatever. But then at other times it's gotten oversold, which is like whatever your neurodivergences are, are actually superpowers. And if you only like reframe it enough, then you will see the mirror flip side of that anxiety, which is like, oh, but you're like really careful at, grammar or you know something like that and it's it's just so such a good example of the black and white thing which is like no your trauma your childhood trauma it didn't either ruin your life or make you a star athlete like it's always a mixed bag 
And we might make some conjectures about like some types of mental unwellness are like less of a mixed bag than others. Some of them are more like just straight up disability and don't provide meaningful avenues for kind of working in self-development, right? And then others are more like a gray area. Uh, One of my, if I had a hidden superpower from all this OCD bullshit, it's that many, um, many new mothers like who've just given birth to a first child are absolutely horrified to be noticing intrusive thoughts for the first time. So like you come home from the hospital, Mm. you've been awake for like 10 days and the baby's like screaming and you're like physically all banged up in whatever way, whatever horrible ways. And they would have thoughts like, oh my God, did I forget to feed the baby? Or like, am I going to drop the baby? You know, and this totally happened to me when I brought home my first and second and third child. But like I was so used to just paying excessive attention to like random scary thoughts or even kind of nonsensical thoughts that it was like nothing. Um, I had sort of already paid those dues. Like when I was thinking of adopting my first dog, I had thoughts like, what if I put you know, rat poison in his water? Or like, what if I woke up in the middle of the night and just like took a knife out of the kitchen and like stabbed him and killed him? But like, so I'd been through all of it many times before. And so um, that was at least this occasional opportunity to compare and be like, oh, I- I've been there. I-, I know what this, I know what this is. I know this face of human life. And it is the face of like a brain that just does combinations and just try stuff out all the time. But some of us pay more attention to some of that than others. I mean, this is what I think regret is too. Like some people have this mental model of regret as like, if you feel a regret over something, it's probably important. Like probably you need to think about it and revisit it and like learn the lesson and whatever. But because of my experiences, I'm like, eh, regret is just like your brain is like mixing the soup around and just recombinating things. And maybe it means something and maybe it doesn't. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it feels bad and like you don't have to do anything. It's really yeah. <laughs> at the end of the yeah. day, maybe it feels bad and you don't have to do something. Yeah, regret was actually one of the one of the episodes that uh, I released with uh, Etienne Fortuy Dubois, and yeah, to me, I think you're right. Like, we don't need to make a a whole mountain out of of any small thing. Um, yeah, like specifically regret. I think you know, if you look at it from evolutionary terms, then it does make sense that it's something that's kind of just indicating and maybe priming you to consider other options the next time you're going to come across some similar decision um, there. But exactly, it's, it's, it, 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 it takes another interpretation on top of that to make it a negative emotion, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, it can be just a learning experience. Um, as a tour guide, I noticed this with feedback you know i make sure that i ask people for feedback and very uh, fortunately or thankfully or or whatnot like usually the feedback is great but in the few times that people have something to say that's it's it's never fun to get negative feedback um and this is another instance where i just realized that this is kind of a a door that opens into a room that you don't really, maybe there's some ugly stuff there or something, but this is exactly the, the opportunity for us to have a blind spot illuminated for us, which is amazing. And now I can go and, and work in that. And it's my opportunity to finally go into the room, find it that it's not haunted and start um, organizing things around. So, um, yeah, it's 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 um, it, it ties back to, to the whole discussion before of finding the finding the, the the solutions to the problems instead of just um, staying very focused on the negative part. Yeah, I mean, evolution's tools are so blunt. Like that thing in us that says like getting criticized is unsafe. I mean, it comes from like something in you thinks that you're going to get like cast out of society to like die in the desert, you know, if someone thought that your tour should have gone slightly differently. And like this, 
trying to solve that, you know, people will, especially if you read like entrepreneur tips or like tips for doing one-on-ones with your manager, even if you're petrified or whatever, they're like, oh, you can reframe this. Like you can decide that this is actually, you're excited to like get better and you need this special valuable tool. And by the way, they're going to be criticizing you, but like, it's actually special and valuable and like educational. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. I mean, you can try that reframing is not nothing. That's the cognitive element in like cognitive Mm -hmm. behavioral therapy. But people sometimes operate under the illusion that like, if you do that, then that will take care of the whole thing. Like the whole negative emotion will be gone or transmuted into excitement or enthusiasm or whatever. And like, that has never been my experience. I have a cynics view. I'm like, okay, we'll reframe what we can. And like, we'll just kind of sit with the rest and yep, just do that over and over and over. That's pretty much it. Yeah, and I think understand that in the end, um, the action taken is is so so important, right? And and this this is, in effect, what really reinforces behavior is the action you take and how you're going to feel about it. And then if we mention um, acts of of courage or bravery of of seeing the thing that is looming over us and we perceive as as dreadful. And yet, dealing with it because we have a good conception of of what is the of what the right thing to do is, this is a major major um, positive positive piece of feedback um, to keep to keep going in that way. And I think another trait is what I mentioned, like looking back and seeing, you know, I I was fearful about when I was about to do the right thing, but I did that. And just having this internal integrity and self-appreciation and self-love where you take care of yourself and not um, go down the path of least resistance in the case if you have some sort of um, uh, obsessive disorder. Um, yeah, so I, 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 really, I really like that. Um, what in terms of... Is there anything that we haven't covered in that you can think of in terms of uh, the topic of negative emotions and why they shouldn't necessarily be avoided? But um, even like for me, it's very clear they should be embraced when the situation calls uh, when the situation calls for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the devil's all in the details there, which is as you say, when the situation calls for it is like there's an element of judgment that is so inextricable um, where it's like some negative emotions really are important guides to action. And like, I wouldn't deny that. Um, And maybe a theme that some people listening to this would be interested in is there's this emerging kind of school of thought around productivity in our corner of Twitter that is non-coercive, non-coercive, non-self-coercive for productivity and really kind of for life generally. And I'm so ambivalent about this because on the one hand, I agree that if like, if your only fuel is like self-inflicted negative emotion and trying to avoid it, like that, that is something that is not likely to work that well and is also probably more painful than life really has to be. But the positive vision there, which is like you could somehow not be like sort of annoyed with yourself for letting something slip that was very important or like misprioritizing or wasting time, like is similarly unrealistic. Um, so how how my views on this look just really depend on what I'm reacting to. If it's like someone who's super into like happy as positive emotion, then I'm going to play up the negative stuff. But in other contexts, mm-hmm. like, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe life doesn't have to be so miserable. Maybe those times avoiding the negative emotion is really fine and not going to lead to some spiral that makes you – you know, not in touch with reality and obsessive compulsive and all these things. It just requires so much judgment. Um, That's why I like working with people one-on-one in my coaching practice is because many of them have consumed all manner of very abstract content around like, oh, you could and should feel this happy 
or you could and should like force yourself to do all these things and call that productivity. And it's like, well, we have to figure it out and we have to figure out like for you individually, um, no, no good guidelines at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this takes me back to what you said about effective altruism. And I still think that if you look into the tenets of the of the movement, you can find no fault with it. But then, of course, you hit apply and real people are going in there and become part of the movement. And you have a social circle that where people uh, radicalize themselves as in any kind of group that is based around an ideology. And all of a sudden from these like pure tenets comes out uh, uh, sort of a, a monstrous uh, thing, right? Which is not helping for the people themselves because again, as we said, for as long as you're trying to optimize for things, you are anxious about these things. And if you're anxious, you're not living well, you're not, you're missing the point. And this is, um, this is just, I think it's, it's important to remember that you, I think, I think without exception, but I will, I will, um, I, I won't say that, but we, we generally don't want to optimize for things because to follow a healthy regimen means to do the right thing at the right time, the right thing at the right time, the right thing at the right time and in succession. And the optimal state for us is health, which, as I said, can be defined in negative terms of just the absence of illness. And that's just something that emerges from a pattern of doing the right thing. So in, you don't have to worry about what emerges. What will emerge from the sum of all my actions is not something that should concern you that much. You should be concerned with doing the right thing. And uh, that is a daily and sometimes, you know, an hourly um, thing that we that we have to think about. Yeah, yeah. And part of what's happening when you see a group of people who are aligned in some like legible way they may not be actually experiencing the same thing. Like the phenomenology of pursuing an ideal, like effective altruism or being vegan or anything can be quite diverse internally. So mm. like some of them really may be not anxious. They may be sort of motivated in a positive, like a pull sense towards the goals, like waking up excited. Like this is totally possible. I'm excited to like wake up and do my work to like save people's lives now and improve the far future. Like that is totally possible. But to turn someone into a maximizer who isn't sort of already, I think much more often involves inducing anxiety or shame. Like I taught critical thinking and intro ethics when I was still in academia and you could always tell there would be a few people in the class where like if you introduce them to like an act utilitarian utilitarianism or like the history mm -hmm. of utilitarianism, it was like flipping a switch, but uh -huh. they weren't pulled in by like the aesthetic and like emotional moral beauty of like a, improving the world. They were just like, Oh God, everything I've ever done is literally wrong. And I have to make, it's like they're on fire in that, anxiety way like I have to do whatever it takes to like not be on fire morally anymore and that is a state of like extreme anxiety and emotional avoidance where like you can't sit with the gray area that like maybe you are making trade-offs in favor of yourself or near ones versus someone else like in some sense that's true but you have to just like get it off you like get the moral gray area off of you as soon as possible and the things people reach for at those times tend not to be um, healthy on balance or healthy or stable in the long run. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the point you just made about, you know, how it's it's different for different people, for sure. And I think uh, just as you say, some of the people come and approach it from a, from a healthy place, for sure. And I couldn't, I couldn't not notice that you've used the, the fire metaphor twice uh, when talking about the kind of thing that is, uh, calling out to you from the from the um, unsanitized walls and for the people that so I just I just wanted to point out and say that's interesting too how people uh, metaphorize their kind of feelings and their internal um, 
place. I, I just want to say it's so different than mine, and it's it's lovely. Like I love seeing how we're we're different, and each of us uh, takes it in a in a different direction. Sure. I mean, some people use fired up as like excited, right? Like uh-huh. that positive thing. Like I wake up, I'm like fired up, I'm like charged up, you know, electricity, energy, like good. For me, it's kind of like the sense that it's bad. It's only getting worse. Like my skin is crawling and like my face. These are the somatic like correlates of some of these like anxiety and panic. Um, But what the fire means to me is really like you have to put it out and it is very urgent. Like if you notice a fire around you, like you can't just kind of like be okay with that. It's like an extreme emergency and some things really do deserve that level of attention. But most of the things that have presented to me as fires were not, they were not really burning. You know, it's like the smudge I saw on the bathroom wall an hour ago, like requires no action. I don't have to like it. It's not Mm -hmm. a fire. Yeah, it's 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 I guess it's it's very timely because you're now speaking to me when I still have a, a case of hives which I've never had before. Oh, but last no. night I just I just became just flooded with these hives and my whole body was hot. I had to take a cold shower in the middle of the night and I I just um described this to my wife. It was like it feels like I'm on fire and it's really like the annoying part is that there's no running away from it. Literally, it doesn't matter right now if I'm going to sit by the computer or do this or do that. It's not going away, and I'm, I'm just scratching myself to death. And she's <laughs> and she just very immediately said, "It's like, oh yeah, like what people with anxiety feel like." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, it's a it's a good way of kind of um, giving me an idea what it might feel like for um, for people." So now I feel a bit more uh, a bit closer to, to people with the fire metaphor in them about how uncomfortable it is. Um, yeah. yeah, Pamela, let me say I really enjoyed this conversation and it was uh, amazingly insightful and I'm very thankful um, for you for uh, to you for sharing your uh, your personal story, which is to me very, very optimistic and and very, very uplifting. And um, yeah, so thank you first of all. Thank you so much. I was so glad to be here. Glad we connected. And um, yeah, and in terms of um, what you do, where you write, um, if you'd like to share with listeners where they can find you and get in touch, then please. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone can find me at uh, PamelaJHobart.com and on Twitter at AmlaPay. Nice. And these will be linked, of course. Um, Yeah, great, great uh, joy. And um, to next time. That's what the J is. My middle name is Joy. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Serendipity. Ironic, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Al. <laughs>